You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Welcome everyone to episode three of Book Talk Today, where we'll be joined by Hassan Kuba, author of The Unfair Advantage, over here. And we're joined by the author. Hassan, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. And uh, I want to start off with one question. So I recently read your book for the second time. I know we just talked about this um, briefly before we started. What have you learned since the book came out? Um, a couple of months ago with all the changes that have been happening and how have you seen the information that you've written in the book sort of change? Has there been anything that you've written before that you feel like has been updated or mm. things that you originally wrote that you would have changed if you had been writing it again in the current environment? Yeah, interesting. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I would say I don't know, it just hasn't been long enough for there to be anything that's really uh, feel like I need to change. I'm sure, you know, it's maybe some views or some ways of, that I've expressed a point might change from mm-hmm. how I've done it in the book. But um, what, I, what we really try to do is to do something timeless in the sense that we were talking about principles rather than trendy things or fads or um, stuff which um, are kind of time sensitive. Really. Mm. And the goal was to create something that's um, based on principles and core fundamentals, which can apply at any time that we exist in society like we do now, that we have, we're working with human beings who are irrational and emotional, mm. even though we think we're logical. So unfair advantages apply um, and they will continue to apply. There might be some small reference points. Um, what was new is since we mentioned Kylie Jenner is one of the case studies in the book, but it's kind of a mention of how like she's not self-made really. Mm. But um, I think it recently, it was such a funny thing. Forbes came out recently about the whole Kylie Jenner thing because they called her a self-made billionaire, mm. youngest self-made billionaire. And then they were like, actually, no, we, we retract it because not not because she's not self-made, which is what everybody was thinking. They're like, no, actually, she's not a billionaire. Her net worth is like 900 million. It's like, who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that, that the point. main point? Is yeah. that, it's like, oh, no, they played around with their numbers and it's not quite a billion. Okay, cool. <laughs> but that's, the point is they called her self-made, which is quite yeah. funny. But it depends on the definitions of it. But yeah, that's something I got into in my TED talk. I'm not sure. Did I? You reread the book recently? Did we talk? Did we kind of make fun of that point in the book? I'm not sure. I, I just I read that one again this morning, and it, you didn't kind of make fun. You didn't, wasn't making fun of that point. <laughs> I, I did that didn't come across, but I know you and and what you're like, so I kind of did read it with with you in mind. Yeah. For, for me, it was interesting reading the Huda Beauty one again, because mm. like she has, I think, uh, like her empire is like a billion billion dollars or, or whatever mm. it is but she's only worth what five hundred thousand. no you know, okay that that's a typo wait is that from the yeah that's actually in the book that's a typo it's it's 500 million and really 
Yeah, it's, I think so. Like if we just Google her net worth now, basically I think that was, a, that was a typo in the book that everybody missed. And I was like the only one. And it's just because there's three zeros missing and it's like nobody noticed. And it just went through the editing, the copy editing, the proofreading. Um, no, she's really wealthy. She's not a billionaire, but she's done very, very well for us. Okay, yeah, I was, I was wondering yeah. for a second. I'm glad it's a typo because I was reading it thinking, um, did she get screwed over there That's big so time? Yeah, so that was the one thing. And I remember trying to think of a list that will be changed. That's been... That's been uh, uh, flagged up and okay. so for later editions hopefully the, for the new ones that will be changed um but no she's done extremely well and I, that was just the yeah <laughs> i think that was my fault <laughs> i think that was me it was probably one of my all-nighters bring yeah. it up and then just not noticing because you just see loads of zeros you don't really when you're rereading something mm. you don't notice okay how many how many millions is that again or whatever mm. so yeah um no, she's done extremely well, but it's just interesting. I think what we did in the book is we were more subtle. We've got Huda Kassan, who's in a very similar industry and in a very similar space to mm. Kylie Jenner. And it was like, well, who's more self-made here? You know? Mm. <laughs> and it was like, it was like set, we said we made the point without saying it explicitly. Yeah. Um, but there are still things you can learn from Kylie Jenner's thing, how she took on how she rode the waves of technology and the trends of the youth and her generation is that um, Generation Z, Gen Z, the American call it, um, she was the biggest or one of the earliest on Snapchat. Mm. And obviously, she leveraged what fame she already had based on being a part of the Kardashian-Jenner clan. Mm. Um, but yeah, she did a lot of things right. And she was always, she had a strong vision. When she was younger, she would say, and I think we mentioned this as well, that she would say, I want to be a businesswoman. Hmm. So yeah, obviously she had the advice and the advisors and the teams of hmm. lawyers and accountants and all that stuff. I mean, she still did something, still something there to learn from. Exactly. Exactly. There's always something there, whatever opinion you have of the individual, the family, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. I think people get very emotional. Like we said that we, we think we're logical people, but we're just emotional at, at the heart of it. Yeah. And I think people get very emotional about that family in particular and, and everything they do. And uh, yeah, it was interesting reading it because there's a, there's a big undertone of irony, I think when in comparison, but uh, I don't think you can take away from what they've, from what they've yeah. done. And that's the idea of, I mentioned before we started this new series I'm working on called mm. Success Decoded the idea of it being like more in-depth case studies than the book because they were so popular in the book i enjoyed researching them and i thought let me do more of this and so um it's even more in depth um what we're doing first is elon musk but we're going to do extraordinary success stories it's the big big outliers so obviously there's um survivorship bias playing a role so it's like it's partly a bit like talking to lottery winners and asking them their strategy for winning the lottery is mm. because they've just got lucky but that's only part of it it's the whole the biggest theme in the book um is the balance and the counterplay between luck and hard work or let's say merit or living in a pure meritocracy or living in a world of randomness and chance and total luck and fate where we have no control and no agency over our own success. Um, and it's striking that balance. It's a very sensitive balance. And really it's in the middle. Success isn't purely hard work and merit. And success isn't purely luck. It's somewhere in between. So like 
the first series we're doing is on Elon Musk, or I'm doing. Um, and uh, it's basically what we can learn from him, but also looking at what his unfair advantages were. And in other words, what we can't learn from him because they were circumstantial or they were inborn talents. Mm. So it's having that right balance. And I thought nobody looks at success in this way. You kind of look at it as one or the other kind of, to mm. carry, you know, as, as an extreme. Either they're thinking of it as those lucky so-and-sos or they're thinking of it as like, wow, they're so amazing. Wish we could all be like them. If only I'd worked harder, I'd be like them. It's like, no, someone it's in the middle. So yeah, that's why there's always something to learn, pretty much. I don't think there's anything in life that's purely luck, probably not. Um, and then there's always a lot to make you think that I can't do a direct comparison. I shouldn't feel bad about myself because everybody starts out at a different starting point. We're not all from the same starting line in life. Life isn't a level playing field. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And, and you did make re- reference to that in the book because I, I did read that again. It says that there's, there's a balance between luck and hard work and, and it's, a, uh, it's a fine balance, especially because you, you, you read like these Forbes magazines and these things from like, oh, I, 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 get, I get them from people all the time. They, they say to me, they, they send me messages saying, you know, what routine do I need to follow in the morning? Like, can you tell me a book that, you know, will give me the best routine to start my day? And I'm like, there's no one right way to do it. It's very easy to look at someone like Elon Musk and think he must be doing it right. But he's Elon Musk. Like he just lives from playing to most humans, like let alone other people who are successful. It's, it's very easy to see someone with that much success and and money and think that's what I need to do. But I think, Mm. I think it's very, it's the hard things to really ask yourself what you value and having that self-awareness, which I think is sort of the, the foundation of your framework that you talk about in the book, the whole, the whole miles thing, um, is that self-awareness comes central to, to all of that. Cause you need to ask yourself where you've come from, where you want to go. Um, and it kind of moves on to something that I actually wanted to ask you was recently I've been reading a lot about how we shouldn't have goals we should have trajectory so trajectory is a lot more important than having specific goals when you were researching this was there any particular reference to individuals who had been successful in their attributes towards goals or did they see trajectory do you remember recalling anything related to that Hmm. so tell me a bit about this trajectory approach so instead of having like concrete goals to say, you know, in like one month, I want to achieve this X, 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 whatever it might be. You say to, you say to yourself, okay, in uh, five to 10 years, I want to be, I want to have a idea about the kind of person that I want to become. So, you know, when you see yourself as being, for instance, if you're, if yourself, you know, you want to be like a, uh, you want to have to writ- written four or five books, for instance. So you want to be a writer. Instead of saying, oh, I want to read four and five books, you see yourself and you embody yourself as a writer and you see your trajectory going towards there. So instead right. of saying, I'm going to finish this book in six months, you say to myself, I'm going to become a writer and I'm going to write every day for, you know, for the foreseeable future and see okay. what comes of it. So it's the idea of setting a trajectory rather than specific goals at any one point in time. Right. So th- to put that into language that kind of I would use in my head, I would mm. say it's about identity level change. Yep. changing your identity yeah. as opposed to um, having 
the external goals. And another thing to look at as well is being process oriented rather than outcome oriented. So being process oriented means I want to write whatever it is, 10 pages a day. Mm. Um, being outcome oriented is I want to write a book. It's like, it's not, it's not that or, or even worse than I want to write a book is I want to become a published author. Now I want to become a published author. Isn't something you have direct control over because a published author meaning, um, as in a traditional publishing deal and then getting into bookshops, not self-publishing something not under your direct control. So you can't have it as an outcome. It's a bit like wanting a particular job or getting into a particular university. You can't fully control that. You can, you can influence it. Mm. Obviously, if you work hard, you're more likely to get it, but you're not hundred percent sure you're going to get it because it's down to somebody else's decision. It's down to some luck in the moment, even something which feels like it's under your control. Like let's say an exam, there's some luck in an exam in terms of how mentally sharp you are that day. Or if, if what comes up is specifically what you revise and what you remember really well, or, you know, wherever. So uh, luck plays a role in loads of different things. So what you want to do is kind of minimize that by saying process and saying, I want to write this much a day, for example. Um, And I think that's so important. I think we do talk about process oriented goals in the book a lot Mm -hmm. in the sense of, if you're making everything about your outcome and about your uh, external success rather than your internal kind of barometer of success, like mm. your inner peace, gratitude, process, identity, it's kind of much more important and what you actually have control over. Um, now, to go to your question about successful people and what they're like, you know, they're all extremely, extremely competitive and they're all extremely extremely visionary but they don't necessarily have the full vision from the beginning Mm. they might just have like stair step goals so for example mark zuckerberg when he started facebook um he thought oh this is a cool thing for colleges but somebody's going to come and solve this issue for the world it'll be so interesting to see who that is never once thinking that it would be him with the face with Facebook, it was called the Facebook. I wrote a post this morning about how companies have different names when they start out on LinkedIn. So I'm saying the Facebook now because that's what it was called when he first launched it. But what he would so as he grew into it and with the right mentors, he had Sean Parker from Napster as his uh, as the president of Facebook and kind of if you've seen the social network, the film or read about his story, he kind of helped guide him from the business side and connected him with investors and connected him eventually with Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, who directed him to Peter Thiel, who was one of the co-founders of PayPal, along with Elon Musk, which I'm now covering in successfully voted. So uh, I think they, what's interesting about the outlier level successes is they don't necessarily do everything right in terms of their habits, in terms of how they run their company, in terms of whatever. But what they do get right is number one, they they get it's the right place, the right time. They're super, super smart. They're super driven and competitive, like crazy so. Like mm-hmm. it would be shocking to most people, and it was shocking to me to see how much the like Mark Zuckerberg used to slam tables with fists and in meetings and say, dominate, dominate, dominate. These are the and he doesn't come across that way in <laughs> his public facing persona, but 
this is how these people are. That makes them sound particularly evil. <laughs> it's not necessarily that. It's just tyrannical. They have, yeah. <laughs> well, they don't have very good press lately, let's say, Facebook. But um, it's more a case of they're just super driven people. I was reading to pay, uh, PayPal. And those people, they were just on another level of hard work and competitiveness and drive. Just crazy, crazy. Like no work-life balance, no sem- semblance of like any kind of, you know, peace, balance in their lives. It's just balls to the wall crazy. Mm. Um, so these are extraordinary success stories. These are extreme stories of success. So you're going to see some extreme action a lot of the time in there, extreme perseverance, extreme vision. Um, I think they do set goals. I think they do differ. You know, there is no one set path. Just like you said, it's not one set morning routine. Some of them don't wake up early at all. Some of them work later into the night. Some of them, uh, you know, we can't all get by on very little sleep. We're all wired differently. We can't, we don't all, we can't all handle that much pressure that these people handle. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it because you kind of grow into it. So starting out, a lot of them were just college kids and stuff and they kind of grew into that role. So yeah, it's a mixture of nature and nurture. It's a mixture of some of them having the right mindsets, some of them not, um, kind of fumbling their way, not all the way to the top, but in the beginning at least, or part of the journey, fumbling their way through it and then kind of getting to the point where they have the right advisors, the right mentors, they start making the right decisions. Um, so it's a very much a mixed bag. Mm. And I think as I go through this series of Success Decoded, which is an email and podcast series, so it's like articles that go straight into your inbox or like chapters of a book. It's kind of like an ebook mm. I'm releasing for free um, or a podcast version. So I'm going more into depth into this. And I guess I'll get a better picture of what the big success stories are like. But we also need to bear in mind that there's a lot of revisionist history in them. Mm. Like I only have the data that I am given, the information I'm given about their backgrounds, which are usually heavily edited by them themselves and the PR teams of their companies. Mm. That's another thing to bear in mind. <laughs> don't know how There's much a lot of um, is being uh, yeah. tampered There's with. There's a lot of you can't take everything at face value. You don't yeah. know what really went on. Yeah, definitely. I think that's sometimes when I read these stories as well, it's very difficult to say how much of this is elaborated to a degree and how much is just left out completely, which is... One of the books that was really recommended was Sam Walton's Made in America or something, the, mm. the founder of Walmart. Walmart, yeah. Um, I can't remember, some patriotic, patriotic title for mm. his book or something. And I heard recently that that book is complete like PR thing to make himself look good as an autobiography. Um, it's still interesting to read. Still can get some cool ideas out of it, but uh, just you know, you can't take everything at a complete face value. So it's something to bear in mind. Yeah, you definitely cannot. And I'm sure when you read about these people, uh, do you when you read something, do you feel like you're constantly sort of source checking, fact checking, looking at multiple sources to see whether it's correct? If yeah. you read something that's a bit dodgy, see? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's not even just that people lie. It's also that people misremember. And it's mm. difficult to, you know, in our own lives, looking back, it's difficult to remember details and the order that things happened in and whose, whose idea was it originally and stuff like that. It's quite tricky. Look, ultimately, we just want to 
gain value from it um, in terms of what we can learn ourselves. And also just as a part of it, which is also a bit of entertainment as well, to learn the stories and to understand the narrative. We, I mean, the whole entertainment industry or most of it or a lot of it is built on storytelling. Mm. Um, that's just how we are wired. Um, all these series that we binge on on Netflix or whatever, all the movies and all that, um, we're interested in the stories and that's how we learn. So yeah, just bear in mind that it's the narrativized version and to make something into a narrative and a story, you have to take out some nuance and some complex details because it slows down the storytelling. And I used to find this so, and I still do find this so annoying in movies because they have to like really cut it down and, and dramatize it. And like, it's like, what is that really what happened? Mm. You know, in these kind of movies based on a true story, it doesn't say it's a true story. It just says based on a true story because they have to make it more entertaining and more easy to consume. Mm. Right? Oh, Life yeah. doesn't happen as a series of uh, scenes. scenes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's difficult to it's difficult to break down someone's full life and accomplishments into like ninety minutes or absolutely. But you do what you can because I'm quite a, a stickler for details. I do get caught up in accuracy. I do. I have spent way too long, especially on this PayPal chapter. It's turned out to be a long chapter, but because it was such a complex history of so many feuds and coups and fights and drama, it's really fascinating. But it's like, who was right and who was wrong and different people saying different things and I'm trying to verify the information and stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes you have to go, okay, now you just need to just get on with it really. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. Just get on and finish it. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's not... Mm, it's not the particular details don't matter the arc of the story matters mm. what you can learn from it matters the lessons are there anyway the lessons are there in the stories and you made an interesting point about storytelling so i, I recently read a book called the science of storytelling by will store very interesting book that talks about the the basis of basically what psychology plays in storytelling so storytelling is essentially all psychology driven because we're all humans and we like we've, we mentioned before we work on emotions rather than logic and so much of storytelling is is in the emotion. Where do you think storytelling plays its role in creating a startup? Because I think it's often the most overlooked thing because the story sells the the actual product at, at times yeah. because it's the story behind it, it's the individuals behind it. You know, like you're saying, when you're researching about PayPal, the story, the the coups, the the drama, and you know you're talking about Facebook with with Mark Zuckerberg slamming his uh, fist down. So we, that story is appealing, and and that sells the the brand even more. So, do you think a company with a perhaps more sellable story is often more likely to succeed? Uh, yeah, potentially. So. What was it? I think it was Netflix. And I think there was a similar one for Uber. What happens is that these startups, they often set up kind of a false mythology of how they, they began. Just because the real story is more messy and they just want something easy to tell people so that people, so it can be more viral and people can talk about it. So I think the story was for Uber, it was like they were stuck somewhere and they wanted a cab and it was raining and they couldn't get a cab. And the reality is much more complicated. They were working on the idea for ages anyway. It wasn't, didn't just come to them. 
Um, and it started off as like a limousine, black service, black car service for limous limousines. And it was like this really posh thing to begin with anyway. Um, similar thing for, did I say PayPal? Mm. They, I think they made it out to be, oh no, I said it for Netflix. They made it out to be that they were fed up of a late fee that they had. I think Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, he was pissed off about a late fee that he had because from block, Blockbuster. Um, so he thought no more late fees. And it's like, that's not actually what happened. But their PR team came up with it because it's just an easier sell. It's a way to highlight the unique selling point. I don't really condone it, <laughs> especially to completely fabricate something. But sometimes you you simplify a story and you go, oh, it started because of this. And maybe you're working, thinking of the idea before them anyway, etc. Um, storytelling is so, so essential for startups, but storytelling is more about communication. Really, any form of communication, whether it's marketing, whether it's fundraising, you're trying to communicate with investors, whether it's sales and marketing, whether you're trying to communicate with customers, whether you're trying to communicate with potential hires mm. or potential co-founders, it's all storytelling. It's just like, how do you pitch it? Pitching is storytelling because it's saying, good pitching is storytelling anyway, or has, it, has at least some storytelling. So I think it's an absolutely essential skill, often overlooked. It's not the only skill, obviously, but it's important to be able to uh, communicate the product. And communication, things are done in teams and to make a team cohere and work together, you need good communication. And good communication comes about from storytelling in a micro sense and also in a bit of a more macro sense of what the story of the company is, the company story, the startup story. Um, yeah, it's so, so important. I think it's huge. And I find it such a fascinating topic. I really do. I really find storytelling so interesting. Um, I've done workshops on storytelling myself where I've referenced the founders, uh, the creators of South Park, mm. referenced the creator of Rick and Morty and Dan Harmon. Um, they have some good, like they've, these guys are real practitioners. They're not like theoreticians and they come up with some amazing storytelling on tight deadlines and they tell you exactly how they do it so we should learn from that we should always look at other industries and other areas and learn from them yeah yeah that's that's really important as well like i always thought when people came up with stories especially novels i always thought it was like a work of art in the sense it was like a an inspirational thing they're kind of sitting there in their cabin and the next thing they know some sort of sort of some sort of you know inspiration comes down from them you know sent down to them but then you know reading the book on the science of storytelling and reading more about storytelling in general it's kind of been a deep fascination of mine for the last couple of months there's like a set process of of doing it and there's a set process and, and it's very interesting because he references joseph campbell he's like the famous uh, american storyteller you know famous for like the hero story and and once you understand that it is basically emotion storytelling it's it changes your dynamic to, to how you tell stories. You referenced, interestingly enough, talking about sort of becoming a specialist and becoming sort of a specialist in, in whatever field that you're trying to create. And I've, I, I recently read a book called Range by David Epstein. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's basically mm. saying how to be a generalist in a specialized world. Mm. When you are reading about these startups and, and, and researching them, were most of them generalist or most of them specialist? Like were, were a lot of them sort of 
because you have you have to think about you know a founder like an elon musk you have to think that guy is the epitome of a generalist because he you know he's managing he's but he's also an engineer he has to know about every single component that goes into like the cars and he has to you know have a breadth of knowledge that is the definition of a generalist but at the same time when you create something and you're the founder you kind of need to be a specialist in in that one arena that you uh Mm. you're trying to create well it's interesting so the smaller the company the more generalist you have to be because the more hats you're wearing so when it's just let's take it to the extreme of a solo solopreneur Mm. one person company yeah he's the ceo the chairman the board of directors and also the the janitor and the cleaner and everything so wearing a lot of hats but the more the larger is the company the more people you have on the team the more you can sort of specialize a bit more and then when you've got a huge huge corporation most ceos are not really specialists most ceos are sort of good at being ceos they they manage assets and they talk about how they can you know make the shareholders happy and they talk about stakeholders and this it's quite abstract by that point because they're on so many levels higher than the level where they make the product or the level where they deal with customers. And that can be an issue, but it can also be something that they need to do as a corporation. Um, the type of roles that founders play are typically kind of three parts, three types of roles. Um, you need the visionary, mm you need the technician and you need the the sort of sales person the communicator the storyteller mm-hmm. the visionary and these three roles can sort of be divided can be one rolled up into one person or they can be divided into three different people or maybe even more sometimes um the visionaries is like the steve jobs it's the elon musk it's the person who has the big dream, the big goal. I think for Canva, it was Melanie Perkins. Mm. I think for um, Microsoft, it was Bill Gates, um, etc. There's For any startup, you can think yeah. of who the visionaries were. They're usually the bigger names. And they're usually the communicators, usually, but not always. Um, for Facebook, the, the visionary was Mark Zuckerberg. But he's actually not the communicator. But he is the technical person. Technical person is the one who creates the product or helps create the product. And so specifically for tech startups, um, you need somebody who's technical because it's a technology startup and you need to have that kind of expertise. So you often have a CTO or uh, the the technical co-founder. So in Apple, that's Steve Wozniak. Mm. in Canva, they had to really search for that one. We've got a case study in the book and I'm going to cover them in Success Decoded. Elon Musk is a technical founder, but he also hires in technical talent as well. But he is, he thinks of himself as an engineer, first and foremost, before anything else. He doesn't think of himself as a generalist. He thinks of himself as an engineer. Um, yeah, so it really depends. It, it really depends on how you can split up those roles. Just bear in mind you need those three. Steve Jobs was also the communicator. He was the one on stage pitching. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is terrible at pitching. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk is on stage as well. 
he's not the best public speaker, but it doesn't matter. His passion shines through, and he's so extraordinary in other ways that it's okay. He's not might not be the best public speaker, but the products speak for themselves, and that's why they don't do any marketing right way at all because the products are just so amazing and outlandish that they kind of sell themselves really. He's a good Twitter um, communicator, though. In, sorry, he is, said, a, he is a Twitter, Twitter communicator. communicator. Yeah, but he puts his phone in his mouth, right? So yeah. he's not the best at it. Um, he <laughs> I think it works to his advantage, mistake. though. It does, but he has—he's told you know—he's been on the line sometimes with the SEC and getting into trouble and stuff. But yeah, he's definitely—he says he likes to express himself on Twitter, so that's what he likes to do. Um, some people express themselves through their hair. He likes to use Twitter. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm a big believer in being a journalist. I'm a big believer in um, having range. I haven't read David Epstein's book, but I, it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds it's, good. I've been recommended it before. I think if, for you in particular, if you like to get into the details, it's a very detailed and research-heavy book. Um, yeah, I think the because when you're a generalist, um, you can cross-pollinate from different areas, and that can create amazing creativity and unfair advantages and insights because you can take learning from one area and apply it somewhere else. And also you can think more big picture. Specialists are more zoomed in and focused on the smaller picture. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you're starting something, it's very, you can't really be a specialist because you, you, like you said, you're juggling so many hats at the same time. It's, it's, you can't just go, you know, straight into just the product. You're you need forced to... to do other things as well. Exactly, and and it's and it's interesting to th- to think how you can, how you can do that. But that's why we recommend getting a co-founder, so you don't have to do the thing that you're terrible at. Like, hopefully, if you can, if there's somebody you know who has a similar vision, who you can trust, who you can work with, that's the ideal is to have a co-founder. Mm. Have you have you found that from your research that most people? Oh yeah. Most people have a co founder. Yeah. yeah, When they they do something. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg obviously had loads of co founders, but his main one later on, he hired in is Sheryl Sandberg. She's the communicator of the company. Mm. She's gone quiet. (laughs) This is all the bad stuff has happened. She doesn't want to take any of the flack for it, but um, she's the main communicator that he deals with. And um, she does a good job of that for Mm. the company. Um, She had built an amazing brand before Facebook's reputation went down with her book lean in and all that kind of stuff um so it's yeah it's a case of like always thinking about what you're missing and trying to find a co-founder we have a case study in the book about the squarespace founder he was one of the few who was a solo founder man did he struggle he talks about like on the verge of nervous breakdowns and the amount of stress and strain that he was under it's very rare to be able to put it off as a solo founder particularly for a hyper scale. What did we call it? A hyper growth startup. Yeah. Um, for a lifestyle business, it's definitely much more doable because mm. you're growing at a less crazy pace. So it's okay. You yeah. can do it, but even then I recommend having some kind of sound sounding board, somebody to talk to because it can get really lonely and difficult. Mm. So that's what I had. I had an accountability partner when I started my first business. So that really helped. Somebody else who's starting their own business, non-competing industry, it was great. It was great. And yeah. I wasn't able to succeed until I had that. So, and a lot of uh, startup accelerators, a lot of investors, they get worried if it's just a solo founder. 
because it's difficult for one person to do everything. It's difficult from a skills perspective, but also from a mental health perspective, just the mm. strain and stress that they under. Where does someone go though if they're they're struggling to find it? Like so because it's, it's a, a trust thing, isn't it? Does yeah, it come down to the luck thing in the book, finding the right people. It's a bit of luck, and and it's just like we talk about in the book, you can get yourself more lucky by rolling the dice more, putting yourself mm. in the right place at the right yeah. time. Um, so if you're looking for a lot of people looking for technical contractors, so you should probably hang out at universities with technical computer science students or whatever the technical uh, expertise you need, the specialism is. Go hang out in those unis, go to those clubs, go to those meetups, like get to meet them somehow, online forums, Facebook, I don't know, whatever, maybe Facebook groups or mm. you have to, it's like, how do you meet a life partner? <laughs> you know, it's just, mm. you have to get out there and meet people, mm. but you have to build trust and you have to take your time and be careful with it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably most people's fear when they start, isn't it? It's who they can actually trust. Yeah, and I think people are usually worried about trust in a different way more. They're worried that somebody's going to steal their idea. It's usually not the that's not the issue. The issue is if you can trust each other um, in terms of like being business partners, hmm. being uh, sharing the workload, even the um, having integrity and you know having the same work Being ethic or, or vision. I think that vision. that's what vision is important. Vision. Yeah. Cause if you're not Technology. aligned on your vision, then it's, it's very difficult. Some person wants to go that way and another person wants to go the other way. It's, it's difficult. Definitely. Like Definitely. It's like, it's like marriage. <laughs> Integrity <laughs> is important. Values are important. Vision is important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Being able to get along is really important. If mm. you've got all those things, but you just don't get on with them. That's not good. You have to get on with them. Yeah, you spend so much with time with them. Yeah, you spend more time with them than probably your spouse. Most likely, most likely. How do you go about developing a self-awareness to sort of exploit your unfair advantage in, in a way? I think from reading the book, it was it was made apparent uh, the actual intricacies of of the framework that you talk about and the, and the different factors. What's the process to getting to that stage? Uh, Self-awareness starts from knowing what you need to be aware of. So just that's why we start in the book with part one is life is unfair. Mm. Just understanding how life is and that whole principle of it being somewhere between living in a pure meritocracy or being based purely on your hard work and between being purely luck. Um, Understanding that. And then understanding the different dynamics and the different factors. So that's what we start with in the audit section, which is part two of the book, mm. which is all about, first of all, what is your why? Why are you doing whatever it might be, a new project, a career, a business, why are you starting it? Um, secondly, it's understanding what your personality type is like, which is very important and not talked about often enough. We all have different personalities. There's no one size fits all advice. That's why you can't say, what is the one right morning routine yeah we all I get right? so annoyed when reading articles like that it's just so ridiculous there's a lot of successful books touting one right way of doing it like um there's that book called the miracle morning which a lot of people really love 
it's all about waking up at like 4 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's really like a, the 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma as well. Successful book. But I think books yeah, like yeah. that, that's more of a title than it is. Because if you actually read the book, it's not actually saying that you should get up. It is saying that you should get up early, but at the same time, it's more the mindset behind creating structure. Yeah. Um, whether it's you get up at five or whether it's get you get up at six, seven, eight. I mean, at the same time, like someone can get up at five o'clock and you know they just sit on their phone for four hours like yeah i mean it doesn't mean anything or you wake up at 11 a.m but you stay up every night working really hard overnight some mm. people like to do that it can work there's no rules as long as the work's getting done exactly fine. exactly i think yeah. some people put too much emphasis on on that i think sometimes. yeah so the personality type is important we recommend some reputable personality tests not, we don't recommend the specific ones, but there's the the five, what's it called? The five main types. That's the main one, except in psychology. Mm. There's the five personality traits. Yep. And I think it's like agreeableness and openness and stuff like that. Yeah. We outline that in the book. And then there's also the Myers-Briggs. Um, I think there's an online website called 16 Personalities or something. If you just type in personality test, I think it comes up. It's a really good website. It's like mm. based on the Myers-Briggs thing. Briggs thing. Um, the main thing that we mentioned in the book is how important it is to not, I used to have this problem with personality tests and that I used to just like disagree with the result or some of the result and just be like, uh. but if, what I realized is this isn't like a science. This is more of like them trying to use science to come up with a model, which is going to be limited somewhat. Mm. Like don't place too much power into it. It's fine. If you just, if you strongly disagree with something, you can kind of reflect on it and see if it's true or not. And then you can also, what we recommend is asking people you know and live with and work with. Yeah. They will tell you, like, <laughs> hopefully if they're going to be honest with you, they'll tell you what you're like. Um, I did, I did so sorry to go on a tangent, yeah. but like I, I did something like that for university. So I did like a personality yeah. test kind of thing. And I, I got the results back and I basically went, that's not me. Like, yeah. I know, I know that's not me. Like, I, I get yeah. it. You got it's your science. It's just not right. And then, but then I went to my mom and I was like, mom, like, be honest with me. Like, what am I actually like? Tell me. And she it really, really struggled at the start. But I kind of said, what am I not good at? And then you'd say things you're like, yeah, I'm actually not very good at that. And I think yeah. it's, you have to go to the people that are closest to you. And we all have weaknesses and we need to kind of accept that. We all have weaknesses. That's okay. It's fine. Just focus for your professional life and your business life focus more on your strengths mm. um so anyway so you understand your personality really helps with what kind of role what kind of position you want to kind of job you want to do let's put it that way yeah. even if it's being an entrepreneur but what kind of job within being a co-founder of a company do you want uh, or even what kind of business do you start and then uh, we move on to unfair advantages. So we break down different types of unfair advantages um, into five different categories. We call it the Mars framework and we put it on the uh, foundation of mindset. So first we talk about mindset, which is what you're most in control of because you mm. can kind of change your mindset just by having a different perspective on the world, reading a book or listening to a good video or even hopefully watching something like this, this listening to this podcast or watching mm. it. Um, just having your eyes opened up to change your mindset and mindset is just so essential without it, without having the right mindset, you, you won't go anywhere. Mm. Um, so we cover some really important mindsets to have. And then we talk about different circumstances, which is in the miles framework. So M stands for money, having money and having that kind of runway 
the kind of financial cushion to be able to fail but be okay be able to pay your bills be able to live be able to eat Mm. (laughs) you need that um most of us have that but sometimes we might need to save up for depending on what kind of business we want to start or what kind of project it is it might be capital intensive at the start Um, so that's important to bear in mind Um, oftentimes the first most of the time i would say the first people to invest in a startup is friends and family they actually call it the friends and family round if you don't know any rich people then bad luck it's just an unfair advantage um next we've got i for intelligence and insight um that's all about different types of intelligence so the typical like being book smarts and iq and being good at school but then you've got eq emotional intelligence how well you work with people and um and thirdly, it's uh, creative intelligence. So those are all very important. And the second two are underrated because everyone talks about the first one, but the first one's also important. And then we talk about insight, intelligence and insight. Insight is having a clear, finding a gap in the market. And we kind of go into that. It's a really interesting one. It's how you find business ideas, startup ideas. Um, then we've got um, L for location and luck, right place, right time. We kind of covered that a little bit. Um, it's timing is so important. Being in the right location is really important. And um, just getting lucky in general. But there are ways to increase your luck, which have been proven through like literally psychology professors have spoken about how you can increase your chances of luck by having the right mindset. You spot more opportunities, you get more lucky. Yep. By trying things more, you get more lucky. Yep. Um, so the idea of increasing your surface area to luck is very important. Um, e is for expertise. Education and expertise. Um, education is a typical one that you've had at university, if you, school, university. You go to an elite school, elite university, you're going to have better connections. You're going to have a um, brand name on your CV or on your LinkedIn. You'll have a better education as well. The content might be a bit better. I don't know to what extent that's true, but I think it is true to somewhat. It is. Um, yeah, yeah, because so. you'll have the um, libraries, you'll have the access to different materials, you know. Yeah, it, it will, it will I would say up. the other two factors are even more important, though, than the actual quality of the teaching. It's more important of who you're surrounded by. Your environment is so massive. So if you're surrounded by really smart people as well, mm-hmm. and also really driven people and really ambitious people, plays such a big role. And also the how much of a badge of honor it is later down the line as well, it plays a huge role. Even more so, I think, than the actual learning. Because the actual learning is more, especially for entrepreneurship, I would say, specifically. Mm. It's more to do with um, learning how to learn, mm. really, than it is. You don't use the actual content at uni in your startup, usually. You might do a little bit, but for the most part, it's not the thing that really makes a difference. Um, and finally, status, which is very, very important. It's how you come across as your personal brand takes into factors things like race gender um height anything anything that affects how you come across what your linkedin profile looks like the number of followers you have how you talk how you walk how you dress anything Mm. um it's also your network massively who you know it's huge bigger than what you know probably and it's also your inner status your confidence and self-esteem so that's kind of, I've gone into it in quite a lot of depth as I ran through it. But mm. basically, it's money, intelligence and insight, location and luck, education, expertise and status. These are the factors for unfair advantages. How you become more self-aware of them, about yourself, 
about your own offer advantages is to know the different categories and you can kind of look at your own life and figure it out. You, you'll get a good idea of most of them. We also do have little exercises at the end of each chapter for you to try and figure out what your own, your own unfair advantages are. So we try to make it as practical as possible. Were there any particular books that you read that helped you with that self-awareness for yourself personally? Maybe not for mm. the book, if you're just talking about personally, because I've had, I've had some books for me. That's a really good question. Specifically for increasing my self-awareness. None that come to mind, there probably have been some but none specifically that come to mind in terms of self-awareness. I think self-awareness for me has been a long journey to figure out my own inner strengths and talents. Like I didn't know I was good at writing, which turned out once I wrote a book and once now I'm working in the series. Um, it took me until I was almost 30 years old to figure that out. Uh, that communication is my main unfair advantage. I kind of had the inkling that I speak well, I speak clearly, but I didn't fully understand it. I didn't know this is something I should double down on. I didn't think I'm good at writing. English was my weakest subject in school. But I don't know, things change or whatever it was, the schooling, I don't know what it was. Maybe the teachers didn't know. But the teachers? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe they um, I was into science very good. and stuff. Well, you evolved. Maybe you evolve also over time. I don't know. Um, so for me, I think I've always been a, con- a big consumer of, knowledge so i think that helped reading helped me become a better writer i think that was a big part of it um so self-awareness has been a long journey for me and i think you only get by trying lots of different things and being patient and asking constantly what am i good at what do i enjoy and you have to experiment you don't you don't know for me it was a real mystery what i wanted to do when i was older when i I was like 18 or even 16 trying to figure out what to do in college 18 trying to figure out what to do in university i had no idea I thought, okay, I'm good at science, maybe medicine. And it seems to be really um, sort of a prestige occupation, yeah. uh, especially from the cultures that we come from, the, mm. from immigrant families. Um, I joke that, that my parents gave me a birthday cake when I was one year old. It's a joke, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so I think it takes time to figure out, to get that self-awareness. It's a journey. Mm. But being made aware, being learning about how different we all are. There's no one size fits all advice. Uh, I used to beat myself up a lot about the fact that I can't do something well. Like I can't stick to a certain schedule or I can't. And for me, like being productive, I need to have deadlines. I'm a procrastinator. I need to have the pressure. So to figure that out took time. Um, Yeah, so things like that. It's just a case of like, it's a journey. Mm. and reading and learning about the stuff really does help i think reading other people's stories is really important that mm. that that's what that's what i've had an impact on especially reading about people who have been through a lot and overcome them i think you I try find and... inspirational mm. uh, for me Owen, i think i was a bit brainwashed with the whole i mean it sounds very negative i think there was a lot of positives to it too but i think the whole self-development world really made me think we're all no one is cut from a different and this can be a useful mindset by the way, mm. just for me to caveat that yeah, yeah but the idea that nobody's cut from a different cloth we can all achieve what anybody else can achieve is not quite true whatever you believe you can no and then i did a lot of beating myself up when i was younger because i couldn't get myself to do certain things which i thought i should be able to do based on some self-help book i read so that's kind of a bit of a 
backlash to that to say no actually there is luck actually we are all different actually there is such a thing as unfair advantages actually talent does exist there is mm. such a thing as talent it's not just hard work stuff like that that's why i i thoroughly detest those people on instagram in particular those coaches or those motivational speakers that come out and say you can be anything you want to be i'm yeah. like you can't like how are you going to tell someone in a third world country that that's the case exactly. like it's it's just a fact of you know everyone everywhere has their unfair advantages they have their things mm. that there are the positives and negatives and it's interesting because you know, I, I do a Q&A every, every Sunday on, on Instagram and, you know, I have people asking me, I had this gentleman from Morocco and he was saying, you know, I read finance books, but they're not relevant to my country. And it's just true. He's like, I'm getting suggested all these finance books, but it's like, I can't implement Robert Kiyosaki in Marrakesh. Like, it's just, it's just the way it is sometimes, isn't it? You can't, you can't get around that. And I think you have to, that comes with time. I think that the thing you said is very important. That comes with time. And mm. it's a journey to try and understand that, you know, some people, they do talk BS a lot of the time when it comes, because they're just trying to sell something. My biggest pet peeve are the gurus, the fake gurus who, who, who preach, um, an extreme, almost like a fundamentalist version of um, the law of attraction. Oh, yeah. Whereby, where they go, um, they go, everything in your life is because you manifested it. Everything. And even, and it, and it goes as far as to say things like, even if you get cancer or the people who get cancer or whatever are born mm. with some kind of unfortunate circumstance they must have somehow their energy they gave off to the universe must have manifested it for themselves. And it's like, that's such a horrible thing to say. And it's just not true. Yeah. Um, they, they want the, they want the positive end of the coin. You know what it is? There's a human tendency to want to feel like we're in control mm. of something that we're not in control of. So things like um, the ancient Aztecs or whatever they were, the Mayans used to do human sacrifices for them to get a better crop. So they used something that's not in their control, the weather, they want to feel like they have control over it by doing sacrificing to the gods or whatever it is. And then they think, oh, we must keep doing that because one year it was lucky and there was some kind of correlation yeah. between it. And so they, they had it. So it's this human tendency to want to feel like we're in control of every outcome in our lives. But what we have to do is realize that we're not in control of every outcome mm. in our lives. We're not that powerful. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a sigh of relief. It's like, okay, cool. So just go with the flow in life a bit, you yeah. know, just kind of realize what your strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. Just kind of, yeah, just try your best and be process oriented, have a trajectory, think of it as an identity, mm -hmm. take it from there. It's, it's very difficult to tell someone who is a control freak because there's people out there, tell them that because there's an automatic backlash because they're like, well, how? Like, how do I do that kind of thing? And that's why I think understanding your personality type is so important. Like for me in particular, I value, I value things that perhaps society doesn't value in the same way when it comes to success or monetary things. Like I value other things. And I think once you understand what your value structure is, mm. it's a lot easier to create a trajectory because I think people are just enforced and they're, they're, they're told a story that is a one size fits all when it comes to the society in which we live in. Social conditioning is like everybody should want white picket fence and this kind of house and this kind of life and this kind of car and everyone's going to the same destinations on their holidays 
everybody is like putting it on Instagram. Everybody else wants to go to this thing. It's just like we're herd animals kind of thing, but it's mm. just breaking free of that and not thinking about it. Yeah, and trying to understand what you want. Yeah, not not for instance from a material objects, but as an individual or as a person. So like a Fight meaning. Club factor. was quite an influence on me for this. Was it? It's a great yeah, movie. Fight I love. I love. Fight Club. Yeah. yeah, it's a depressing film. I remember feeling depressed, but I think it was quite philosophical. <laughs> oh, it's a very it's a very philosophical uh, philosophical movie. The Matrix yeah. did that to me. Matrix, yeah, because that's still Definitely. my favorite movie. Yeah, that's awesome. That's brilliant storytelling as well. Brilliant storytelling. Which they didn't I, pull off in the second, the two sequels. I don't know. I think people, I think people hate on them, but I think they're pretty good. Yeah, I, th- I think the second one was good. I think, did I watch the third one? The second one wasn't too bad. But mm. the thing is, the first one is so good that the sequels are not as good in comparison. But I think the premise of who's actually in control is 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 central to that. And mm. you know, with the red pill and, and the blue pill, it's you know self awareness. That is the the basis of it. It's becoming self aware and yeah. breaking through those those barriers and and seeing and seeing the other side. So you know, very important concepts. And, you know, there's, there's, the more you read about it, the more knowledge you, you get and learning from other people and, and doing that. It's, it's such an important thing with the new series that you're writing. Are you going to look at history? Are you going to look at like revisionist history? Are you going to look at personal circumstances when it comes to individuals and try and understand what motivated them, what, you know, their advantages were and, and their circumstances? What I'm trying to do is, so there are a lot of biographies out there, right, of successful people. But those biographies try and cover everything. They try mm. and cover their personal lives. They try to cover their ups and downs. And like, it's trying to be comprehensive most of the time. What I'm trying to do um, is to, specifically write it for people who want to learn from their success so i'm coming at it from a different angle coming at it from the angle of let's look at their lives let's see what we can learn from the decisions they've made which is what they've kind of been in control of and also let's look at the circumstances and the the inborn talents that they might have had and then might have developed through the ten thousand hours through practice through um trying lots of things one of the common denominators i think the only you asked me about common denominators of successful people i think the biggest one is speed of implementation or speed of execution what successful people do or let's let's flip it the other way what unsuccessful people do and i've been guilty of this myself many many times is overthink mm. and overconsider and over and hesitate. Mm. Um, on the idea or on the implementation? On, on everything. Specifically on taking action. In other words, they'll spend too much time in theory land. They'll spend too much time in their heads just considering and fantasizing about something. But not being like, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's try it. Just being too scared to try it or, or whatever it might be that's holding them back. The resistance is the war of puts in the war of arts, Stephen yeah, yeah. Um What successful people do is they just do it. Mm-hmm. It's simple. So it's they're just taking more action. They put stuff out there. They risk failure more. Mm-hmm. So publishing something 
or try, starting any new project, um, even like publishing a blog post or whatever, a tweet or something, whatever it might be, is putting yourself out there. The more you put yourself out there, the more you can learn from the feedback mm. of everybody, of the market, of the reaction, and then you get better. Mm. If you never put anything out there, you never get better. Mm. The same with starting a business. You kind of, you start and then you get feedback from the customers and from the market and people tell you this is too expensive or this is too slow or this, I'm not happy with this. So now you're, you're in the hot seat. Now you're under pressure. Mm. So it's like taking on that pressure. Mm. One thing I really noticed about Elon's life is he does not shy away from taking responsibility and taking more pressure into his life. Mm. Does not face him. Completely confident in himself that he can make more money. Completely confident in himself that he can support. What has he got? Five boys, and now he he recently had another boy, (laughs) baby boy. He's not. So he's a billionaire now. But even when he wasn't, he was like totally like, yeah, cool. Let's just have loads of kids. Like it's fine. Like often, the reason I'm thinking of this is I'm at that stage of like thinking of starting a family. And a lot of people at this stage are scared. Are like, oh, what if it's a lot of pressure? It's a lot of strain. It's a lot. And it is. It's not like being a father isn't difficult. Just using this as an example, right? But it's like just thinking about, yeah, I can handle it. Let's do it. It's, it's just that. It's, it's quite simple. It's quite a simple thing. It's the same with starting business. It's a lot of pressure. You might fail. It's going to be embarrassing, but it's like, let's do it. Let's take on the challenge. So it's, it's that it's just being able to put yourself out there, being able to take action and being able to risk failing. It's not like, I think some of those statements can be a bit extreme. Like, yes, the more you fail, the better or something like that, wherever there's motivational talks. It's not about failing for the sake of, you don't, you're not trying to fail. You're trying to succeed. Yeah. But if you fail, the point is it's not a big deal. I mean, that whole idea of fail forward, it doesn't mean you try to fail. It means you try to succeed, but then if you fail, you don't beat yourself up and think you're ashamed for life and you're going to be, you're going to be exiled from society or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was referenced in the book Rework. I think you, you referenced the, the founders, was it Basecamp? Yeah. 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 They they said, they said that in that book. Um, What did they say? they said that idea about everyone says to that you need to fail in order to succeed. They're like, no, you could just succeed. Like, oh, why did they that... say it? Yeah, yeah, they said it in the book. <laughs> and it was that idea. I remember reading it and, you know, you, you hear it all the time, you know, fail forward and, you know, you can, yeah. only, you can only succeed after failing. And they're basically yeah. like, well, you can just succeed straight away. You and can, then, yeah. And, and then just learn it from happen. it. Uh, I, th- I think people emphasize that a bit too much. I think sometimes because I think what I think it's with the right intention. I think mm-hmm. it's the idea that, you know, there is a possibility to fail. And if you do, it's okay. Rather yeah, yeah. than don't deliberately do it. Expect, you know, but you know, people who are successful going back to the question of type, what, what's the common denominator between them? They do not like failure one bit and they will, go crazy to not fail like they will do anything in their power you if you see elon's story of how he almost died his startups almost died he it was insane the amount of stress and strain he was under he went from having 180 million dollars from the sale of paypal to borrowing money for rent because of the 2008 downturn really affected his business at a bad time and he just, he didn't go, 
screw it, I'm going to just drop one of the, let me drop Tesla and focus on SpaceX, for example, Mm -hmm. which he would have been able to (laughs) obviously focus more on and make it successful. He was like, no, I'm not going to let either of them die. Mm -hmm. So they have this tenacity, this competitiveness, this, you know, they say winners, (laughs) I don't know how true this is, but it feels true that winners are sore losers. You know how they say it's, it's, it's good to be a gracious loser? Yeah. But some of these outlier successes, they really hate losing. Like I look at the PayPal people like Peter Thiel and um, yeah. Max Levchin and those guys who were the main members of the PayPal Mafia, as they're called. And then from there, loads of start, companies started like YouTube and Yelp and yeah. um, the investors of Facebook came from there and stuff. They hate failing. They cannot stand the idea of failing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, the, it, it, it's all nice and motivational and we could talk about it as all nice stuff and business can be nice and it can be nice. But when you have that crazy level of success, it doesn't mean you're a nasty person. It just means the drive, the fire in them to succeed can be extreme, really extreme. Mm-hmm. They really hate failure. Mm. So they don't think to themselves it's okay to fail. I don't think they think that, that to themselves. We say that to ourselves because we just want to get started. Mm. Just to encourage ourselves to get started, it's okay to fail. Once you've started, you can't tell yourself it's okay to fail. But it's one of those things as well, Hassan, don't you think? It's a, it's a weird mindset to have when you go into something with the idea that it's okay to fail. Don't you think? Because what, then. Weird. I, I think I think it's weird if you're going to go into anything thinking about like you don't go into a tennis match thinking oh there's a possibility of me failing or that you don't go into a sports you know like a, a match or like for me if I think about it when when I go for like a run or if, I, if I'm competing like I don't think oh what happens if I do this or what happens you just think exactly. about you just think about doing it to the best of your ability yeah that's why I feel like this whole fail forward thing it's like great if it happens but it shouldn't be yeah. the, the thought when going into it. It should just be, just do the best you can with what you've got at the time. Yeah. I think it's about, it's tricking you in a good way, tricking yourself into getting started by lowering the pressure. So the for example, one trick from, yeah, it's like, it's like uh, the atomic habits trick of like, let's say, uh, no one's going to the gym at the moment. <laughs> I don't know if they've even reopened yet from the whole COVID situation. No, but, but the basically, pubs have. If you were, the pubs have, but not the gym. Yeah. Um, so if you want to go build the habit, you know, you want to get into shape, let's say. Yeah. Um, one of the ways to do that, one technique that can work is to say, you know what, I'll go and just do a five minute jog. Yeah. But what you're doing there is lowering the bar. Mm. So it's like saying just to get yourself to do it. And once you do it, then you might build on that habit further and start to be like, mm. I want to, take it 15 minutes on now lift some weights on whatever the point is you lower the bar to get yourself started because you feel too the reason you're not started is you're overwhelmed with the fear of failure so you tell yourself okay it's okay to fail just get started it's okay if it fails you try to succeed but it's okay if it fails so i think the idea is that kind of mental trick again in a good way to get ourselves going to get ourselves to take action obviously once you take action you need to tell yourself that it's not okay to fail but then that might affect there comes a point where you should kind of think, okay, this isn't working, right? 
Yeah, that's the last point to say this isn't working. Let me try something else. Let me try a different business. The last thing you want to do is to be failing and then be like stubborn about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to understand what market feedback is versus what can you brute brute force your way into kind of making work and what you can't. Yeah. Yeah, not everything can work. Unless you're Elon. Unless, yeah. And Tesla stock is crazy, crazy right now as we're recording this. It's gone up like mental despite everyone else going down pretty much um but yeah it's that's why i found him so fascinating to cover and in, mm. in the series it's, it's been really interesting and uh, people think he's you know the the kind of tweets i get is like oh yeah he was his dad owned the emerald mine he was a rich kid and of course he succeeds he's just lucked his way into it he takes credit for some other people's success and there's this whole narrative that he didn't earn any of it um which is not true because if you go into the story that you'll see for the most part he is pretty self-made but then again he did have some unfair advantages he grew up white and wealthy in apartheid south africa hmm. that's a huge unfair advantage right there he went to good schools um he was able to get canadian citizenship moved to canada then hmm. able to get a scholarship into an american university to move to america um not everybody could do that hmm. but i mean that by itself is not enough. And also he had a terrible childhood. He was bullied severely. His dad was abusive. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand when people can look at Elon Musk and be like, he was from a rich family. I'm like, there were so many yeah. people who's been from a rich family who've done absolutely nothing. Exactly. Like that's not a determining factor for success. And then you know, when he moved to Canada, he, he had to pay his way, own way through university. He was living on like hot dogs and stuff because he had no money. And mm. It was crazy. It was just like he had to make every bit of money he made he paid his way through university all himself um he was selling pcs and repairing them doing parts when he was in college in canada when he was in america they used to rent out him and his roommate used to rent out their house um and make money doing parties there and he was always supporting himself he wasn't he was his first startup he was sleeping in the office because he couldn't afford to rent a place as well so this isn't like coming from a privileged background when he was living in canada before he went to uni he him and his mom and his siblings lived in a one bedroom i think studio flat or just a flat uh, like an apartment and him and his brother used to take turns sleeping on the couch while mm. one sleeps on the floor it, it, that's it's yeah something you can say he was mm. just a rich kid it's not that simple um but yeah he was he's uh, i would say his unfair advantage is he's like a genius Pretty much he's a child prodigy he's super super smart especially when it comes to engineering programming logic that kind of stuff he's incredible and he's also got almost a sort of a photographic memory mm. pretty much the closest you can get to a photographic memory is what he's got so yeah it's fascinating yeah it's probably fascinating and i think anyone who's interested in learning more definitely go check out your uh, your series on your on your newsletter yeah, it's a successdecoded.substack.com if anybody wants to check that out and subscribe to that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's links to the podcast on there. There's, um, and whenever I release a, release a chapter, it's just pure value. There's no commercial thing at all at the moment. But there's going to be, I don't I'm planning to do any ads on the podcast either. I'm not planning to do any. I just want to make it like, I just want to get pure value and just spread this kind of idea of, how we can balance looking at what we can learn from somebody and also looking at their own advantages at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. It was great to speak to you again. And I look forward to rereading the book when you update it. Do you have plans to update it? Um, no, not really. Um, we might later down the line, who knows, we might do a revised edition and stuff. But my main focus is it's kind of this new book that I'm working on, which is Success Decoded. It's kind of, uh, I could eventually probably release it as a book. Mm because it's just chapters that I'm putting together and it's for different entrepreneurs. I'm doing Elon Musk first. Next, I'm going to do Melanie, Melanie Perkins, the founder of Canva. It's an amazing story. She's now the second richest woman in Australia. She's really young. She's, um, her uh, Canva is now valued at $6 billion. Incredible. It's an incredible story. How old story. is she? Like 32. Oh, wow. Yeah, something like that. Um, after that, I'm thinking of Bezos, mm. maybe Zuckerberg. Definitely going to cover those two guys anyway. Mm. Going to put in Oprah. Going to put in um, some other female founders as well. Mm. Um, there's a cool list I'm working on right now. Um, just picking up the pace on it and just getting into the habit of writing and research and recording podcasts. Going to do a YouTube channel on it too as well later down the line. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's been a cool thing. Yeah, sounds really exciting. Well, best of luck for it. And, and once again, thank thanks you very much, much for coming on. Um, yeah, the book is The Unfair Advantage. For those who haven't uh, read it, definitely recommend it. And yeah, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hopefully, uh, when uh, Success Decoded comes out, I look forward to yeah. reading it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's already, we've already got three chapters out. You should check it out already. Yeah, I should check and it out. If, if somebody's watching this now, I'm sure chapter four will be out, which is the PayPal chapter, which is a big meaty one. Um, very, very interesting to learn about the PayPal story. Yeah, yeah I look forward to read it. I look forward to subscribing Thanks, straight man. after this finishes. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, man. It's, it's been fun. Great. Thanks for it. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, see you in the next episode.